Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Oh man, I like the fog. Yes? Is it just me? Fog is cool? <laughs> awesome. So excited this morning. Um, so, yeah, today it's kind of a, I'd say, an upbeat sermon. Um, very hopeful, and, and scriptures usually are very hopeful. That's the whole point. Um, but today's, it's just very fun. We get to go through the, finish the prologue in the Gospel of John. So, to start, though, I want to ask if you guys have heard of somebody. Have you ever heard of a guy named Don LaFontaine? Don LaFontaine doesn't ring a bell. So he is like one of my most cherished, important uh, people of my childhood. I think you guys know who he is. <clears throat> and, and if he was in this room, we couldn't point him out. If we saw a picture of him, we couldn't say, yeah, that's him. That's because really nobody knows what he looks like. I mean, some people know, but we know him by his voice. And so he has the nickname uh, Thunderthroat, the voice of God, or the king of movie trailers. You guys know who I'm talking about now? Yeah, also back in the day, you know, we used to go to a movie theater and we didn't know movies were being made. As a kid, I, I didn't know what was being made. And so we sat there just so excited to go through trailers, hoping, you know, every week there was going to be a new Star Wars movie. Like, we didn't know. And so... You know, we saw these trailers. Every one of them was essentially the same. They had a formula. They had an outline. And you had Don LaFontaine's voice. Totally loved that experience. But what I love even more is the Gospel of John. Now, I mention that because, at least for me, as I go through certain parts of the Bible, I hear voices as I'm reading. Like, I, see, I hear the voices of, of people as I'm reading. Maybe you've heard Charlton Heston right? Reading through your Old Testament for some reason, right? And so, or for me, R.C. Sproul sometimes, or John MacArthur, and I hear that voice as I read, and it really makes it come alive for me. But as I read through the Gospel of John, especially the prologue, right? The first 18 verses, I hear the voice of Don LaFontaine, because it's, it's literally set up like a movie trailer. And so this morning, I want to go through the entire thing, very briefly what we've covered, and see how it builds up and gets us excited. It has this hook, and then it has a hero reveal at the end, and then an invitation to come, come and see this. And so this morning, our sermon is called, Jesus is Grace and Truth in the Flesh. Let me pray for us before we get in. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for everybody here. So excited to see all these awesome people, all their awesome faces. Um, thankful for the fog this morning. I can get used to that. And Lord, just thank you for all you've done for this church and bringing us here this morning, Lord. May, may the name of Jesus be lifted high, Lord, and may we make an impact in this community to your glory, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing I want to look at this morning is the buildup. And the Gospel of John, like a good trailer, the first thing it does is establish what's happening. When, when does this take place? What is the setting? What is the problem? What is the dramatic element 
that we have to encounter here. And we saw this in verses 1 through 5, where it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is a tale as old as time, literally, like the tale as old as time about the person who created time and, and everything else. And so the setting is this world that was created. And so the struggle, the fight is between the light and the darkness. And like a good trailer, we find a ray of hope, right? In the darkness, there's a ray of hope coming. And literally, a light we find in verses 9 and 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And so, it's like, what? Why do they not know him? What's happening? What's happening here that, that we don't understand? And here is where we get the hook. This is where we get the hook. And so the hook is this unique concept, right? It, it's what sets this story apart from every other story. What is it about this story of light versus darkness that is different than every other one? Does it take place in space? Are there dragons? Are my favorite time travel? Like, what is, it, what is it? Is there a character, an angle, personality? Why should we pay attention to this story? And the readers of this gospel are probably thinking the same thing. This is kind of abstract. We're talking about reason and power and this person named the Word. What is happening? And something incredible happens in verse 14. This is where we start, where we pick up now. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word becomes flesh. That mystery, that great core of our faith, that God became man. This is what makes this story and our faith unique. This is what makes our faith unique as Christians. This is the hook that catches people and drags them out of the darkness. It's this hook. And so... Yeah, we're going to spend some time here looking at this, this shocking development. And believe me, the people who read this the first time are really shocked and, and in disbelief, as we'll see. So let's look at this idea of God becoming man. What? And so for the, the, the person experiencing this prologue for the first time, this shift from the cosmic logos, reason, power, which should be cherished and worshipped, to becoming flesh this is repulsive. This is repulsive to the people who are, who are reading this. Because at this point, right, we had Greeks and Christians and Gnostic Christians, and their thinking is very simple, right? God, good. Spiritual, good. Reason, good. Material world, bad. Very simple. Material, not good. And to make matters worse, in the Greek, the word for flesh that's used is sarx or sarxe. It's literally the grossest word you could possibly use. It could have said the word becomes man, uh, becomes human, but it says becomes flesh, right? Like zombie flesh. The word became flesh. And so a lot of people reading this are just grossed out at this point. And for this reason, this story is really the greatest fish out of water story ever told. We know what a fish out of water story is? Yeah, somebody gets frozen and then thaws out like in a different era. 
And so what we have here is God living in his creation among people. This, this doesn't make sense. And so some would argue, no way, like, no, no, let's figure this out. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what actually happened here. And so some people argue, okay, God didn't become man. Um, he put on a man costume, right? This is, these are the theories. So God cosplayed or costumed as a human being. Or others refusing God can't become man. It's, well, um, he went into a person. There was already a man who existed. God went into him spiritually, and so didn't become man, kind of hung out as a man for a while and then, and then left. And then the last one is, man, we were all tricked. This is just a, a theatrical trick. God appeared to be man, didn't become man. And so, of course, what we've read in the preceding verses is that it's clear that John's argument from the beginning, as we talked about, is that the word that Jesus is God. Everything so far is God, right? The word is God. God created everything. God is the light. This is God we are talking about. So there's no doubt that it's God here. And then it proceeds to say that he became, the word became flesh from the Father, right? Proceeded from the Father, and so the closest possible relationship from that essence, from being God, God became flesh. And there's no argument here about that. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says it this way, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is God in the flesh. It shouldn't make sense. And in some ways, it's very hard to understand. And yet, I would still say, us here today, this is another place where we draw a line in the sand and we say, no, God became flesh, God became human, was fully God and fully man at the same time. He came and he dwelt with us. So what does this mean, dwelt? What does it mean that that God dwelt with us? And, And essentially what it means is like he came and hung out with us. But for the original hearers, like all the light bulbs, right? The lights are going off of the original hearers when they hear this because they remember God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. So it's like, this sounds familiar. And so what we see in verse 14 where it says, dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the hearer of the words are like, oh, like in the book of Exodus 40, 34, where it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in the Greek, this term here, that he dwelt literally means he set up a tent, right? Or he pitched a tent to hang out with them. And so we have this allusion again to the Old Testament, like so far it's been the allusion to Genesis 1. Now we have the, another allusion to the Old Testament of God dwelling with his people, only now it's in the flesh. It's not in a tent. It's like face-to-face with people. They get to see God's glory face-to-face. But it just begs another question that we need to look at. The question that I annoyed my high school teachers with, where I be, they, they, they very highly disliked me because I would always ask, why? Right? Why? Why do we have to do homework? Why? Who said that? You know, just why? And so this morning, like, why? Why does God need to become flesh? So I want to quickly look at four reasons. And there are many reasons. These are not the only four, but that, that came to my heart. And the first is that it shows us God's love by showing up. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, met with people, and they are upset, right? They are angry. 
They are in tears, frustrated and sad because they had a party, graduation, performance, something, and somebody didn't show up. And so God shows up, right? Jesus shows up. He came in our greatest hour of need. God came in the flesh to come and dwell with us and show us his glory face to face. The second is to sympathize with us. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so because of his love for us, he experienced what we experience. And so Jesus, I mean, man, talk about having some toxic people around you, slandering him, betraying him, literally trying to kill him. You know, those closest to him dying and him crying. And he did that. So when you go to him as your priest, and Jesus is your priest, he is our high priest, he knows when you lean into him, and we know from his word that he's there with us, that he knows exactly what you're going through, and he's crying right there with you. And the flesh also shows us that it could be done in him. If we are in him, in Jesus Christ, and he didn't sin, and he didn't, then we have the strength and example of overcoming sin in our life as we are being transformed in and by him. And of course, to save us. When we speak of being saved, we're talking about a transaction, right? So it's a transaction that's taking place. The imputation of my wretched life and the cesspool of my brain for Christ's righteousness, the life he lived in the flesh. So I'm so glad that Jesus, right, came in the flesh, that God came in the flesh, because it's in that 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 body was destroyed when it should have been mine. So praise God, right? When God looks at me, he sees the flesh right here that we're talking about instead of my flesh. So that's just amazing. Matt Carter summarized the incarnation like this. He renounced the glory due to him, becoming poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. So do we see a little bit why, why flesh was needed? So there, yeah, there's a, there's a purpose behind this. Now speaking of flesh, speaking of flesh here, so... When we have an amazing story like this, one thing that we really need is a flesh element, a human element, something that's someone that's more like us, right? So what we need is is a guide. And so in film, in literature, you probably realize, or you will now, there's always somebody that's going to guide you through what's happening. Uh, In a lot of superhero movies, it's the best friend who knows the secret identity of the person, right? They're on the inside, and that way we're able to see who the hero is through, through their experience. Or it's the person we learn the rules of the universe through, right? Through their experience and their coming to understand, we understand how the universe works. And in this case, we have the former, the guy who knows the secret identity. A guy named John, right? John the Baptist, or if you heard last week, John the Witness. This guy likes to witness all the time. And so right in the middle of this revelation of the word becoming flesh, it talks about a guy made of flesh. And so it says in verse 15, and it seems like it's just out of nowhere. It doesn't even fit there. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is him of whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. As we talked about last week, John is just so excited whenever he sees Jesus, right? It's like, there he is. That's the guy. All right, stop paying attention to me. That's the guy you need to to pay attention to. And if you're older like me, you remember like Superman serials, right? Where it's like up in the air, you know, a bird, a plane. No, it's Superman. And John is essentially saying here, God-man. Look, it's God-man. It's literally what he's saying. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is God, people. And he's saying this, and, and he's talking about rank. What does rank mean, right? And so in this culture, you know, it really associates with how old you are. And so if you were older, you outranked the person that was younger than you. Um, in a family, you know, if you were the older sibling, you outranked them. And so John is saying here, don't be confused. Don't be confused. Yes, I am older. We know John was born first and he's older. He's like, I am older, but he's still way before me. He was around way before me. He eternally outranks me. So lose this whole concept of rank right now. The person, the word here is divinity. This is God, been around forever, is not on our scale of rank. And next week, we're going to have a whole sermon about John. John is so fun because he's going to be a great guide for us as he shows us how to interact with God. But this got me thinking about, you know, about guides and us as a church. Having a guide is important. This is one thing I want to see developed among us. In this church, I want us to be good guides. I want all of us to be good guides. And here's what I mean. Like, I believe that God's doing something in Bakersfield. That's why I moved halfway across the country, right? I, God's going to do something here, and Vagard's going to be a part of that. Which means there's going to be people coming in these doors that God has called to the church, that God has called to Christ, and they're going to enter this universe that we have, that we take for granted because we meet every Sunday. This is a whole new universe to people. Why are we singing? Why are we standing sometimes and sitting sometimes? What books are we reading? What language are you speaking? The guy on stage, this funny-looking guy, what are these long words he's using? And so I want us to be good guides. And so when people come in and we see people, whether they look lost or not, when we see them, that we voluntarily, as a form of worship to God, guide them into our culture. If you are not part of church culture, this is weird. Why would anybody be listening to me, right? And so let's guide, let's be a church that that guides people well and let that be a core value that we have here at Vanguard. Is that something we can do? Yes? Sweet. I believe it. And so moving on as we go through this prologue, we've seen the buildup, we have the hook, we have a guide. And so now what we need to understand is kind of what are the rules of this universe? What are we looking at here? In other words, what are the skills, abilities, powers that are going to save the world, that overcome darkness with goodness and light? And so what we're going to look at now is the superpowers. The superpowers of grace and truth. And so when we go back to verse 14, it says the word became flesh and he was full of grace and truth. Just came ready. Grace and truth on the scene. That's what he's bringing so I want to take a moment and kind of look at these terms. What do, what do grace and truth mean? I think we know what they are, definitely, but try explaining it, right? And so grace is mentioned here 
uh, four times just in these five verses. So this is seriously important. I believe it's uh, 124 or 128 times just in the New Testament, this idea of grace. And so according to Merriam-Webster, it says, Grace is unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. That's actually a really good definition for Merriam-Webster. Like, it's usually, you're more confused when you look up something in the dictionary. But that's actually a very good definition. But I like John Piper's more. He says, grace is undeserved favor. So grace is that quality in God that produces free gifts for guilty sinners and salvation. We see this in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Which is why Leon Morris says, grace is that which causes joy. And I like that one the most. Like that just gets, doesn't even try to get technical. You know, if it's grace, when like when you're super excited about it. We know when grace happens. And so it's just something that makes us happy. So I love that, that definition. So grace is something we can't earn and something we don't deserve or are owed. But what about truth? Now, I have to be careful here. <clears throat> I can get, uh, my kids can tell you, I can get on a soapbox right now talking about uh, our culture and the concept of truth. I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I know I'm get off, get off my long guy with this. I know. But truth does exist, right? And so there's this push, this push against truth and the belief that truth is relative. And it's not. I, I would say that whole idea is rooted in the fact that people just don't want to be responsible to truth, not that it's relative, And that's not biblical truth. I think biblical truth is just simply how God sees things. God looks at it. That's what it is. That's reality. That's true. So Stephen Lawson defines truth like this. It's defined as that which conforms with fact or reality. It is genuineness, veracity, or actuality. In a word, truth is reality. It is how things actually are. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. And it's true, but it means that truth is not relative to us. It doesn't care what we think. It doesn't care about our arguments. It doesn't care about our situations. It doesn't care about our culture. And so I actually agree uh, with a young conservative out there who's not Christian when he says, facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. Therefore, truth is what is true to God. In verses 16 and 17, we're going to see this idea of grace and truth fleshed out, pun intended. So let's start with verse 16, where it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. What a weird phrase, right? I think it's actually really cool. If you look at the different translations of the Bible, like NIV, it says, Grace in place of grace already given. I forget what translation it is, but it says uh, that it's heaped. Like there's heaping, like gravy, like grace is just poured on top of us. And this means that um, in our lives, as we need grace, that it's okay. There's more than enough grace for us. And if we use it, then it's replaced or poured on us. Plenty of grace. 
And it also means as we give grace to people, we don't have to worry about like a tank of grace that we're afraid to show grace because we might lose it because we have this endless supply of grace. And in verse 17, it gives like a really interesting example of grace upon grace or grace replacing grace, where it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So let's start with the first grace, which, you know, might not sound like a grace. The law was given through Moses. And so the law just means the first five books of the Bible, and and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But the law given to Moses is grace because God communicated with people. God communicated with people, not only communicated, but said, hey, this is the way you should live. If you want to honor me and know me and worship me in faith, this is how to do it. So there's grace there. The problem was the law didn't have much grace to offer when you broke it. The grace is that it points out our sin. It points out my sin. That's great. I'm glad to know what my sin is. But in the law, there's nothing that could relieve that guilt and condemnation. And so in the law, we have God's expectation and our grim reality of our state, but we need more grace, which leads to the unveiling of our hero. And so now we're going to look at the hero. And so going back to this idea of, 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 of pro, the prologue here as being a movie trailer, this would look much more like a modern trailer where if you have a superhero movie, it's cool to wait till the very end to reveal who it's actually about. And so you're watching it, there's explosions everywhere, you have like Hans Zimmer, right, the soundtrack going, and it's loud, and you're like, I, I don't know what's going on, but it's awesome. And then you see something like a hammer hit the ground or adamantium claws, right? A bat light in the sky. And you're just like, yes, okay, I know what this is about. I can't wait to see this in two years. And that's what we have here. We have that moment. We're all throughout the prologue. I don't know if you realized it. This is the first time we hear the name Jesus Christ. It's been teased out. This is God, logos, power, reason, light, creation, everything. And you have to get all the way up into this part with all these ideas of what you think it might be like. And then this person is Jesus Christ in the flesh. And he brings grace overflowing with grace. It's just his power. That's the power he uses And he brings truth as well, right? Because that's what we need the grace for, is the fact he's also bringing truth to us. And the truth is we've all fallen short. We've all sinned. But the truth is there's also grace in him. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we have this grace. Not because we deserve it or worked for it or because we owed it, but just surely because of his grace. And that's the truth, right? Right? You see that? The grace and the truth, how they work together. And the great news of the gospel is not that it's a cool story or a movie, but that it's actually true. It's it's reality. It's not just truth as information, but as transformation. This truth, this grace will literally transform us. Yes, by saving us, first and foremost, this truth and grace will save us. But it also affects our daily lives. So I just wanted to look at some additional ways that grace transforms us. And the first way is that it allows us to show grace to ourselves. And I don't mean by this 
take your sin lightly, right? I'm not saying take your sin lightly, ignore how, how bad sin is. As Paul would say, by no means, that's a horrible idea, don't do that. But when you stumble, when you're depressed, when you're sad, when you don't think God sees you or loves you or, or you don't know your value, you can turn to the truth of Scripture to find the grace that you need. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is truth and grace. In Romans 8, 35 through 39, and I hope we get to go through Romans as a church, just letting you know. Recommend that so I can do it. <clears throat> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's truth. And that's grace for us. And in Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God knows where you are. No matter where you're at, God knows where you are, has a plan, he's going to execute, and you know, he has those God abilities, and we just have to lean into that truth. Secondly, the restoration of self. Through grace, your life can become what it was supposed to be right? Before we were caught up in sin and darkness, now through grace we can become and our lives can echo what they were supposed to look like originally, including being delivered from slavery to sin. It says in Romans 6, 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that you're not a slave to sin anymore, that you now have the option to not sin? You didn't have that choice before, now you do. You need to lean into that truth, or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No matter what situation you're in, God not only knows that, but he already has stuff planned out for you. When you experience that truth and grace, when you come out of it, God already has work for you to do to bring him glory and bring you joy. And third, it allows you to show grace to others. And you could even think of this as forgiveness to others. As you've experienced grace, you're supposed to pass it on, right? Don't just hold it all to yourself. That's not the idea. We have grace upon grace so that we exhaust ourselves by showing grace to people. And we come to God knowing he has plenty of grace to give to us. That's to say, if you want to see your relationships, if you want to see the people around you grow and light up and become awesome, show them grace. Show them grace. And yes, sometimes the most graceful thing you can do is, is tell people the truth. Absolutely, I would agree with that. But the heart of that has to be from grace. And that doesn't mean let others walk all over you. Don't, don't, let, don't hear that from me. Just be okay letting stuff go or forgiving people and remembering what it feels like. I know what I've been forgiven of. 
That's why I don't, I don't mind spending the rest of my life talking about this. It brings me joy because I know how it feels. And remember that in your relationships, how it feels just to be forgiven and loved no matter what you've done. Have that grace upon grace in your relationships. And this leaves just one more element of this uh, trailer-esque prologue, and that is the call to see. Like any good trailer, at the end of it, you know, it's like coming soon, or you need to come check this out. And so we see this here at the end of the prologue of the Gospel of John in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the whole point of this prologue is that the word Jesus is the revelation of God. So if you want to believe in God, if you want to see God, then you have to believe. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. You want to see God, seeing is by believing. So this morning, just come and see. Come and see for yourself. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.